You do have a, a sermon outline that says the calling to follow Christ on it. You want to have that out and get your Bibles out and open to John chapter 1. We're coming to the end of uh, John 1 as we have raced through the first chapter uh, now in our seventh week. The, uh, I hope you've been able to keep up. And uh, we're at John 1, verse 35 through the end of the chapter. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word. It is before us this morning. We pray now that you would speak to us through it, that we might be changed, that we might be enlightened by your Spirit. Father, pray that we would hear from you at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it a little warm in here, or is it just me? I'm going to sort of take this off, because I'm hot. Hot in the sense of the term of referring to temperature, not anger. I don't know what else you were thinking. I want to talk to you about hurricanes. I don't like hurricanes. They're big and noisy and loud, and they do all kinds of stuff. And I have learned, because I am a smart person, that hurricanes and trees are not a good combination. 
I may not be an expert on that, but I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that trees and hurricanes just don't go together. First time I was in a hurricane, I lived in Holland. I was a freshman in high school, and Holland was hit by a hurricane. And I remember there was great concern at the time because Holland's a very low country, and uh, they were worried about flooding. Well, the hurricane wasn't that big, at least by hurricane standards, but it did knock down a huge tree near where we lived. And I actually went and looked for a picture of that tree because we took a picture of it, but I couldn't find it. So, But my dad had driven by that tree on his way to work. And so after work the next day, he said, you got to check this out. And it was an old tree over 100 years old, and it was huge. It was about eight feet across, and now it was lying on its side. And you could see the root system, which just ripped up out of the ground, and, and the roots had to be 25, 30 feet high. And he said, come and see. And so we went down and we saw this tree and took pictures. And it was pretty amazing to know that there's a power out there strong enough to knock down something that big. My next hurricane was in the summer of 1991. We lived in Massachusetts. And it was Hurricane Bob. And Bob ripped through New England, causing millions of dollars in damage. But to be honest, Bob had lost a lot of its power by the time it had gotten to us north of Boston. And we were huddled in our apartment, and we watched the storm from our living room window, and it brought terrifying wind and great uh, sheets of rain. And when Hurricane Bob finally passed by, I stepped outside and noticed that a huge tree next to the playground had been blown down by the high winds. So I went back inside and told the kids, David, Beck, and Sarah, and uh, they were little back then and just a little less skeptical than they are now. And uh, they looked at me like I was nuts. How could the wind knock down a huge tree? And rather than try to explain hurricanes, I said, come see for yourself. And they did. And sure enough, there was this great big tree lying on the ground. Our last hurricane uh, was in the fall of 1995 when we lived in Alabama. And it was Hurricane Opal. And it was a real hurricane. When it hit our town, it was a Category 3 hurricane and it tore the town up. And we stayed up for it, playing Uno in our dining room by candlelight while Opal roared through. And people say hurricanes and tornadoes sound like freight trains when you're in the middle of them, and that's true. It's really loud. And Opal was no exception. When it hit, you couldn't hear a thing. Anyway, after a while, it passed over, and I opened the back door to take a look around. And in our backyard, right outside the girls' bedroom window, was a pretty good-sized pecan tree. And the pecan tree was still in our backyard, and it was still right outside the girls' window, and the bathroom window, and the boys' bedroom window, and the kitchen window, and the dining room window. See, it was now horizontal rather than vertical. It had fallen parallel with our house, and we never heard it. We couldn't have been more than 15 feet away sitting in the dining room. This tree had literally fallen right outside the room we were sitting in. It had to have been a huge crash, and we couldn't hear it over the roar of the hurricane. So there I am standing in the back door saying, "Hon, I think you better come see this. 
we have a surprise back here. And so she came and she saw and the kids came and they saw and we had all five by then. And they asked those half questions that you tend to ask when what you're seeing is hard to understand. How could, when did, what was, and just sort of stop because you're not sure how to word it. So what does all this about hurricanes and trees have to do with today's passage? Well, quite a bit, actually. Because a hurricane has just roared through town. This was Hurricane John. And John the Baptist is, once again, pointing to Jesus. And as we read this passage, we read the same type of questions being raised. How could? Are you sure? Can it be? Is it true? And we see the same answer being given, first by Christ and then by one of the disciples. Come and you will see. Come and see for yourself. Come check this out. Come look. So let's see where that takes us. We've come now to the part of the Gospel of John where we're launched into the momentous first week of Jesus' ministry. And there's seven days involved beginning when John the Baptist met with the delegation that came from Jerusalem and ending with the day Jesus attending the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And this morning we're looking at the third day when Jesus calls the first disciples. And uh, once again, it starts, it's actually we're looking at several days in here, but it's going to start with the third day. And it starts with Hurricane John. We'll see that here that John points. John points. That's the first blank in your outline. It says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Apparently, pointing people to Christ was the mission of John the Baptist. However, it's somewhat remarkable to note that the first two men to follow John's advice were two of his own disciples. And I think that speaks to the greatness of John the Baptist. I mean, it's, it's not easy to gather followers for a good cause, But once they've been gathered, it must be a lot harder to tell them, I've taken you as far as I can go. It's time to leave me and follow a greater cause. Follow him. I'm sure it's always a difficult thing to direct your people to follow someone else. But this is what John did, and it was a great thing. In a very similar way, this is our calling as well. We need to point people to Christ to prepare the way for them and then to present them to Christ so he can begin a great work in their life. I think we have a lot to learn from John the Baptist. And as we continue on here, we read about two questions. The first is asked by Jesus in verse 38. He asks these two men who've just left John, what are you seeking? The NIV and the New Living translate that. What do you want? And as is the custom of our Lord, he asks a question that is at the same time both simple and profound. 
It's a simple question of what do you want, not unlike you'd hear whenever you enter a McDonald's. But it's also a profound question. For Jesus is stopping these two men to find out why they've decided to leave John the Baptist and follow him. What are you seeking? Are you seeking security or a new cause? Do you have any idea who I am and what I'm about? Do you realize the cost of leaving John to follow me? And Jesus is still stopping people today and asking the same type of questions. Christ confronts those who claim to follow him and makes you face why you're following him. Are you following Christ because that's what's expected of you? Are you following Christ because it seems better than the last thing you left? Are you following Christ because you think you'll be accepted by other people? Or are you following Christ because he's the only one worthy of following? Because only in Christ do you know the way. Only in Christ do you have the truth. Only in Christ are you given life. And then there's a second question. And this time it's directed back to Jesus by those same two disciples. They ask, where are you staying? It sounds kind of like an odd question. But I think they wanted to know first if he had somewhere to stay and if they needed to provide for him. But I think second and more importantly, they were trying to find out where he was staying and if there was room for them in that place. I think they were probably interested in finding a private place where they could ask him more questions and talk to him personally without being in a hurry. And we ought to learn from that example. Seek out a private place where you can spend time with Jesus. A place where we won't be interrupted. A place where we don't have to hurry. A place where we can ask him questions, talk to him personally. A place we can read his word and reflect on what it means for us today. This was also a simple question, but like the first question, it had profound meaning. So John pointed these men to Jesus And they weren't sure how Jesus would react to them. Imagine their surprise when they hear Jesus invite them. Verse 39, Jesus invites. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Jesus answers their question of where are you staying with a welcome invitation to come and you will see. And once again, on the simple level, he gives a gracious lesson in hospitality and building relationships. I'm sure that delighted the two disciples that formed the beginning of an intimate friendship with Christ. But on a deeper level, he presents these two disciples with a challenge. Come with me. Ask your questions. Find out who I really am. And in the same way today, we need to be telling people, come and you will see. Let them come find out for themselves. Do you really want to know about Christ? Then come check it out all the way. Don't get thrown off by the people or the church or the preacher or the denomination They're all people just like you. They're human. They make mistakes. They have faults. And sooner or later, they're going to let you down. So instead of focusing on the people, come to find out about Jesus. 
who he is and what he's all about. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have faults. He'll never let you down. If you're going to come and see, then come to Christ and see him first. So Jesus invites these two men, and we see a series now of personal pictures, individual stories of people who respond to Jesus' invitation to come, and you will see. And the first one we see respond is Andrew, and Andrew brings, Andrew brings, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew is kind of a special character in the gospel of John. He's not a very well-known apostle. We don't read too much about him. And it's interesting, however, that almost every time, he shows up three times in the Gospel of John, and almost every time we read about Andrew in the Gospel of John, he's bringing someone to Jesus. In verse 41, we see the first thing Andrew did after spending time with Jesus is to go get someone else, his brother, and bring him to Jesus. And so he brings Simon. In chapter 6, we'll see he brings a young boy to Jesus who happens to have five loaves and two fish, which, of course, Jesus uses to feed 5,000 people. Chapter 12, he brings a group of Greeks to Jesus so they might have the opportunity to hear him. We don't know, we're not told, if Andrew was any good at understanding all the things that Jesus said or Jesus did. He may not have been very good at answering questions or understanding doctrine. But we do know he was good at bringing people. There's a marvelous consistency about Andrew. Every time we meet him in the gospel, he's bringing someone to the Lord. And that's a noteworthy characteristic. It's important to note that Andrew first went to his brother. He started at home. And I think most of us know it's far easier to talk to people we don't know about Jesus than to talk to the people we do know. For some strange reason, mostly fear on our part, the better we know the person, the harder it is to talk to them about spiritual things. And the hardest is family. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, with husbands and wives being the hardest of all. Unlike, you know, the guy next door, your children, your siblings, your parents, your spouse, they know you. They know whether the thing you're professing has affected you personally. They know whether you take your turn washing the dishes or not, or whether you try to wiggle out of responsibility. They know whether or not you're... uh, You put thought into caring for the other members of your family. They know whether you're touchy and anxious, above all, to defend your own interests. In short, they know whether the faith that you profess is real or not. They can see, because of that closeness, if your faith is real or if you're just talking. And they can figure out far easier than most whether Christ occupies the highest point in your life or whether you do. 
surveys of churches in America tell us that over 85% of all Christians in America come to the Lord because of the influence of somebody who was close to them. A good friend, a roommate, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member. Andrew is just the first in a long line of people who've learned that the most effective witness is the hardest witness with people you already know. And so the first person we see respond to Jesus is Andrew. And he brings Peter. The next person we see who responds to Jesus' invitation to come, and you will see, is Philip. And Philip follows. Philip follows. We read about Philip, next person, it says, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. I like Philip because Philip, as I read about him in the scriptures, is pretty much an average, everyday, ordinary kind of guy. He doesn't appear to be anything special. In fact, several times in the Gospel of John, and I can identify with this, Philip seems sort of lost. You know, he reminds me of a minor league ball player who's been called up uh, to the majors at the end of the season and quickly realizes he's in way over his head. There's no way he can compete with these guys. And Philip strikes me as that type of person. He's surrounded by the the big three, you know, the, the great apostles, Peter and James and John. And Philip has, well, limitations. Philip probably feels he's out of his league. But it wasn't Peter, James, or John that Jesus went out and found. It was Philip, this perfectly ordinary man, a man who, as far as we know, had no, you know, huge outstanding quality. And you see, Jesus is not only interested in the great people. He went out of his way to enlist this humble man and to make him an apostle. And it becomes pretty clear that God doesn't need great men and women to get his work done. And often he uses very ordinary people like you and me and Philip. And I find the story of Philip very encouraging. There's no notable event that makes him great. And yet Christ has placed him among the chosen 12. And ordinary people like us can learn that God has a place for each one of us in his service as well. God still wants and uses the services of his Phillips. Let's not be discouraged by our own limitations, but let's be comforted by the example of Philip, just an ordinary guy whom God chose to be ordinary for him. And what does ordinary Philip do after he meets Jesus? He goes out and finds his good friend Nathaniel. Verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. He gets the great line. So we see that Nathaniel here in verse 46, his first reaction is to question his friend Philip. 
It's the kind of question that casts doubt on this situation. You know, sort of like somebody saying, be serious today. Nathaniel gives him one of those, come on, you don't really expect me to believe that, do you? How do you answer a response like Nathaniel's? Do you try to argue with the person? Do you try to answer each one of their objections one by one? Do you turn your back and walk away and feel rejected? Philip's words must have just tumbled out of his mouth. Nathaniel hadn't heard about Jesus, but he knew his Old Testament. He knew that Bethlehem was named as the birthplace of our Savior, not Nazareth. Besides, Nazareth is just four miles from Cana, which is Nathaniel's hometown. I think there's a little rivalry going on here between these two places. You know, kind of like Eastern Loudon and Western Loudon. You know, Western Loudon thinks Eastern Loudon is this horrible, built-up, overcrowded place. And Eastern Loudon, not sure Western Loudon actually exists. And it, it's, you know, Nazareth and Cana. Today, Nazareth is the big city and Cana uh, is the little city, but then it was the other way around. Cana was a big commerce place and Nazareth was small. So obviously Nathaniel is from Eastern Loud. And Nathaniel challenges Philip. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I'd love to hear Mary answer that question. Yeah, my son. But Nathaniel gives him the best answer. He says, Come and see. Come and see. And we need to make that response when we are tempted to argue with people about Jesus. I think it's wise to follow Philip, ignore the cynical response that is uh, some of our natural tendency, and just say, come and see. We don't always have all the answers. We don't always know all the solutions. But we're all capable of telling people, hey, I don't know, but I want you to come and see for yourself. And you'll be able to understand and able to make your own decisions. And there's another lesson for us there. We ought not to let people's stereotypes about Christianity cause them to miss Christ. Christianity is an open book. It's available to all. There are no secrets. Invite them to come and see for themselves who Jesus Christ really is. The third person we see who responds to Jesus' invitation to come and you will see is this man, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, true to his nature, uh, questions. Nathaniel questions, verse 47. And uh, this encounter between Jesus and Nathaniel reveals the spiritual realities that are at work here. It says, starting at verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now Jesus emphasizes that Nathanael is a transparent, honest man. And as we saw in his response to Philip, he said what he thought. And I think that characteristic was confirmed by his reaction to Jesus' words. He said, how do you know me? Now, if Jesus had said to me, 
Behold, the believer in whom there is no deceit. I would say, who, me? No, not me. You've got that wrong. But see, then I would think about it and rationalize and say, well, you know, you are the son of God. And if you say so, then maybe, you know, and play that game. But see, Nathaniel just owns up to it. He was, in fact, a deceitless man. And we all know people like Nathaniel, straightforward, well-meaning people who don't hesitate to tell you exactly what they think. And sometimes it's hard to take. Sometimes it's not. They usually don't know because they've already moved on to the next topic. And I think Nathaniel was one of those types. Honest and to the point, Nathaniel didn't beat around the bush. But he's a man in whom there's nothing false. And he's honest enough to check out Philip's claims for himself. And thus he met Christ and became a believer. And here's where it gets very interesting. Notice that our Lord said Nathanael was an Israelite in whom there was no deceit. He says he was an Israelite indeed. He put deliberate emphasis on that word. Because of Jacob, the Old Testament patriarch who was renamed Israel. And Jacob was full of deceit. He was a scoundrel who loved God. And God worked in his life until finally, after wrestling with God, Jacob was renamed Israel. And Jesus is saying that Nathanael was an ideal Israel because deceit had gone out of his life. In fact, one translation has that verse, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Now, Nathanael's evidently an Old Testament believer like Simeon and Anna who's looking for God. And the Lord knew Nathanael's character before he met him and said he was a deceitless man. Well, how could Jesus know that? Was he just good at reading people? I mean, I think that must have flashed through Nathanael's mind. And with his mind whirling, our Lord astonishes him in verse 48. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Nathanael was not only uh, deceitless, he was able to put two and two together pretty quickly. And he knew that God is omniscient. And he realized that Jesus' statement demonstrated omniscience. This man had to be God. Consider his response, verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What an incredible answer. Because he was an Israelite with no deceit, Nathanael was prepared to come to know God. And when he saw Jesus' omniscience, he responded and believed. And he did a complete 180 and confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. Because he experienced the reality of Jesus Christ. And Jesus invited Nathanael to come and you will see. And he got Nathanael. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Knowing that Nathanael is prone to questioning, Jesus preempts him by answering his questions before they're even asked. And we see starting in verse 50, Jesus answers. Jesus answers. It says, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, Nathaniel, because you saw I'm omniscient, you believe, you haven't seen anything yet. And now it's obvious there's a change of audience in verse 51. 
Up until this point, Jesus is addressing Nathanael, and the pronoun you is singular. But in this verse, it changes. It says, in this verse, Jesus answered him singular and says, I said to you, plural, you, plural, will see. In other words, within the verse, the shift focuses, or the focus shifts. There's a word for that when you get those words. I don't know what it's called, but I do that. Um, the focus shifts from Nathaniel to the whole group of disciples that he has, about four at this point. He's broadening the audience. He's making the words universal in meaning. And he takes the lid off in verse 51. And this is the climactic verse of John chapter 1. I don't think it's the theme verse. I think that was back in verse 14. But this is big. And it's hard to understand, so we just kind of gloss over it and move on because the next story is really cool. He says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that statement takes Nathaniel back almost 2,000 years to the time of Jacob. Now, understand its meaning. We have to know its context. Genesis 28, which just so happened to be our responsive reading this morning. If you remember Genesis 28, Jacob had just stolen the birthright. Remember I said he was a deceitful guy. He'd stolen the birthright from his brother Esau. And he's a scoundrel, a rascal, a liar, a cheat. He's full of deceit. But he also loves spiritual things. Far more like us than any of us would care to admit. And because of his fear of Esau's wrath, Jacob, the conniver, is fleeing for his life. And making such a sudden departure meant he wasn't well prepared for traveling. And yet the distance he travels that day is about 43 miles across the wilderness. And at the end of the day, worn out and tired, he comes to a valley that's just strewn with rocks. We pick up the story in Genesis 28, verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. You're really tired when you can sleep on a stone. And Jacob's in terrible shape. He felt wretched and alone as if he didn't have a friend in the world. And even in his tremendous loneliness, fleeing out in the wilderness, God loved him, deceitful though he was. So God comes and comforts him with a vision, verse 12, Genesis 28, 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Under that ominous Syrian sky, God gave him a vision of encouragement. Look, Jacob, do you think you're all alone out here? There is traffic between heaven and earth on your behalf. Let that comfort you. And that's the dream that Jesus is referring to when he's speaking to Nathaniel. Although he mentions no ladder. Again, verse 51. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Genesis 28, the angels ascending and descending on a ladder. John 1, the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
All of the finest biblical scholars say this means Jesus is the latter. And that's a tremendous truth. The latter is Christ. Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. As you enter into a relationship with me, as your spiritual vision is broadened, you're going to see swarming angels and hear the rustle of their wings as they move on that ladder between heaven and earth for you. And this is actually what happens on behalf of believers today. Look, do you think you're all alone out there? There is traffic between heaven and earth on your behalf. And all of that heavenly traffic moves on Christ, for Christ, by Christ, and goes up and down at his bidding. We need to hold on to that truth. Jesus is the latter. And his words bring into our lives the same stunning realities that were Jacob's. God is often closest when he seems farthest away. Have you ever been out in the wilderness of life with stone pillows so it seemed as if God was far away? Well, we learn from Jacob's vision and Jesus' explanation to Nathaniel that God is active in our lives, especially when we think we're most alone. Christ's words make relevant to us both the tragedy and the ecstasy of Jacob's life. Jacob's response to the vision of the heavens open and the angels and God's words to him is this tragic statement in Genesis 28, 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And that's the tragedy of modern Christianity. We have de-supernaturalized, I don't even know if that's a word, but we've de-supernaturalized life to the extent that we don't see God. God is in this place and way too often we don't know it. We go to work and God is there and we don't know it. And we go to school and God is there and we don't know it. And we go out into the neighborhood and God is there and we don't know it. And we have personal relationships and God is there and we don't know it. All the time, God is there and we don't know it. And don't think for a minute that mentality, that spiritual dullness excludes church. I mean, we sing the songs together and we pray together and we worship together, but far too many of us don't really know he's here. The scriptures say that God inhabits the praises of his people. Do we really believe that when we're singing all those songs? And a lot of times we just don't No, he's here. And tragically, the result is our Christianity becomes an empty, monochromatic Christianity that isn't interesting to either the world or to us. But on the other hand, I love this about the scriptures because there's always the next verse and we get the ecstasy of Jacob's life. Verse Genesis 28, verse 17. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Do we ever think about that when we come in? 
We're in an auditorium in a middle school. We sit down, we get a bulletin, there's people up front and they're going to, you know, do good music and say cool stuff. And do we ever think, this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. One of my favorite journals to read is called First Things. It's a monthly survey of religion and culture and public life. And it can be kind of academic, but it has some wonderful stuff in it. And it makes me think about things from a biblical and theological perspective. And this week I read an article in a real old copy of First Things by a woman named uh, Frederica Matthews Green. And she's uh, an evangelical member of the Orthodox Church. I'm, Probably the best way to describe that. She's also a syndicated columnist and a, a commentator for National Public Radio and a frequent uh, contributor to Christianity Today and their whole stable of magazines because they got about 20 of them now. But she was writing in this article about, and actually she was reminiscing about her becoming a Christian. And she writes, and this article is eight years old, but she writes in it, almost 24 years ago, now... 32 years ago. Yeah, I became a preacher because my math skills were real low. She says, almost 24 years ago, I walked into a church in Dublin, a Hindu, and walked out a Christian. I had an unexpected confrontation with the presence of one I discovered to be my Lord and was set reeling. I knew I needed operating instructions quickly and particularly wanted to find out who this Jesus was. So I hunted up a Bible, a pocket-sized King James with print several microns high, and plunged into the Gospel of Matthew. And I disliked it from the start. Jesus was often abrupt and hard-edged. I disagreed with some of the things he said. I was offended. But something happened in my heart. The confrontation in the church knocked a hole in my ego. I knew at last I didn't make the world, I didn't know everything, and it was time for me to sit down, shut up, and listen. I kept working my way through the Gospels, and they began working their way through me. There are still parts of the Bible I don't like, but I like the parts I don't like because I know that's where I need to listen harder. Jesus said, come and you will see. And the men he said that to came and they went with him and they did see. They saw Jesus share the heavenly father's love with tens of thousands of sinners. They saw Jesus calm storms, walk on water and turn water into wine. They heard Jesus put down those who were overly proud and lift up those who were crushed down by guilt. And they saw Jesus raise those who were dead, both in body and soul. And they also saw Jesus arrested, and they saw him condemned, and they knew he died on the cross. But they saw an empty tomb, and they saw Jesus' burial clothes uh, left in the grave. And they saw a living Jesus, and they had the opportunity to listen to him and eat with him, and if they had chosen to touch him. And they saw Jesus ascend into heaven and they saw the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And that day the church was born and they talked about the things they had seen. 
They shared how Jesus had the ability to forgive sins. And they shared how Jesus cared when no one else was concerned. And how Jesus would listen even when everybody else had tuned you out. And how Jesus would be with you when family and friends forgot you. And they shared what Jesus did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. What do you seek? What do you want? Do you want a long life? Jesus gives you eternity. Do you want to be rich? He's going to take you a place where money is meaningless. Do you want to be surrounded by people who care for you? Heaven is filled with such souls. You want freedom? Jesus died to grant you freedom from sin, death, and Satan. All the things we want, all the things that are deep within us, Jesus knows about and supplies. What do you want? Jesus should be at the top of the list. Come and see. Meet him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there's a promise to you if you'll respond to him. You'll begin to see the unseen. Even things that may have always been there, but you didn't have the spiritual eyes or understanding to notice them before. The heavens will be open and the angels of God will be ascending and descending upon our Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. Jesus, our ladder, has his feet planted on the earth and his humanity and his hands in heaven. And the promise is you can know that reality. And do you know how you get it? The same way Nathaniel did. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You can say those words and not believe, but if you can say them with a heart full of faith, Grace will be poured into your life and your life will change all because of Jesus. Now, there may still be parts of the Bible you don't like, but then perhaps you'll come to know those are the parts where you need to listen harder. Jesus said, come and you will see. May God give us the grace to listen harder to the truth of his word. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we hear Jesus telling us to come and see. We hear one of the apostles telling us, come and see. And we raise our questions and our objections. But what about this? And what about that? And somehow getting lost in all that stuff, we don't get to see Jesus. Father, give us the desire to follow. To come behind Jesus and to see what he has for us to see. To accept that our life will be different. It may be easier, it may be harder, but it won't be the same. Father, I pray that we would respond to Jesus' invitation to come and see. That as we go through the Gospel of John, we would see Jesus. That you would give us that desire 
And I know we're not going to do that on our own. We're going to walk out of here, and there's a million things going on, and work this week, and school this week, and all the other stuff of our life. And Lord, we need your spirit to work in us, to enable us to respond to Jesus, to his invitation to come and see. So Father, I pray this morning that we would come and that we would see. And that we would tell other people, come and see. It's all about Jesus. It's not about all that other stuff. Come and see. Father, I pray that you would give us those words. That you enable us to hear those words. That we might see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.